What's critical and different about my race and my campaign is that I really need to be able to mobilize that segment of the population that traditionally does not participate in electoral politics. And that means um, making believers out of people who the system has historically left behind. So if you could just do it now. Yes. Yeah, so try pressing record for me. Yep. Awesome. It's recording. And then the number should just be time should be going. Yes, it's and going. It, awesome. And then if you could just leave it on the keypad. Yep. And that should be perfect. Great. Okay. So we're just going to jump right into it. So okay. if you could start by introducing yourself, your name, your age, if you'd like to, your race, your pronouns, and your gender. Sure. Um, so my name is Diane Morales. I am 52 years old. Um, I am an Afro-Boricua. Um, pronouns she, her, hers. Um, and I am a female woman. Incredible. So I wanted to start off this interview by first just talking about the current events. Um, so COVID-19, I know that you are running for mayor and we're going to get more into that, obviously, um, which is so exciting. Um, and I just want to know your thoughts, like what's going on with COVID-19? What advice can you give us? And then I'll dive into more specific questions. Yeah. Um, so I want to... Um I want to thread the needle carefully here because um, I am not an epidemiologist or a doctor um, and don't want to give advice on some on some level, but I certainly have um, thoughts and opinions about all of this. Um, you know, I think that unfortunately, for, for better or for worse, um, COVID-19 is, is kind of, um, this is, you know, it's obviously it's a natural thing, right? Um, it's a reflection, I think, of our... Um, lack of care for the environment. Um, I, I think, you know, Mother Nature is sending us a really strong message, unfortunately, um, in terms of, of, you know, the evolution of the, of the virus. Um, that being said, I think that um, one of the other things that has happened um, in this pandemic is that there's been sort of a glaring spotlight um, on the, the void, the leadership void that we have in this country, um, and, you know, both nationally and, and in New York City locally, I think, um, which is really, really unfortunate. I think we had the opportunity to try to get ahead of this um, and we missed that window um, and we're still not doing enough to catch up. Um, it is it is disturbing. Um, it is frustrating. Um, but it also creates as you know, as, as I shared, I think it, it creates a sort of a mandate and an an opportunity for a community to come together in a different kind of way around supporting one another and um, putting the needs of the collective above the individual needs, um, which I think is key, um, and figuring out ways to support each other um, and to take care of each other um, at a point in time where, you know, the, the sort of government structures that are supposed to be responsible for that aren't really doing everything that they can do. So, um 
you know, that's that that's the sort of over my overall take on on where we are right now. Yeah. So when you talk about the government structures and what they can do better, if you were elected mayor, say, let's say during this time, what would you have done differently? Yeah. So, I, you know, last week, early last week or maybe late the week before, um, I started calling for the closure of the schools. Um, You know, our our children, um, you know, it's a a double edged sword, right, because in in New York City public schools in particular, um, you have some of the most vulnerable um, children and families in New York City, right? Both in terms of, of economic, you know, poverty, um, communities of color and that kind of thing. And so I, you know, I understand the pushback at the time was, you know, so many kids rely on schools for meals and for, you know, um, a safe space and, and childcare and those kinds of things. Uh, but I do think that we have in New York City have developed models and alternatives for that. And, we, and we've been doing that for years. And so, I was really frustrated by our sort of delay in just pulling the trigger on that and, and switching over to those models, whether that's the, the summer school model, which was one of the things that was most sort of loudly advocated for. But the other thing is the community school model, um, which p- partners nonprofit organizations and healthcare and, you know, critical services in, at a school location. So I think we had a model that we could have followed and we could have done that much sooner because... You know, I think that kids were um, interacting and transmitting and caring um, and that we didn't do as much to get ahead of this as we could have in a variety of different ways. I still think, you know, I still think that the response is slow, right? There's um, vulnerable people in in jails and prisons um, who are over eight, you know, older, um, have pre-existing conditions. Um, prisons are essentially like a Petri dish, right? And we know who's in those prisons, Um and so we're not providing for them or caring for them in the way that we should. Um, the medical preparedness in terms of, you know, we know this is going to be explosive. I, I appreciate the governor's leadership on this recently. But, you know, the fine line that he's walking between, like, trying to manage it and trying to um, downplay it a little bit in terms of, like, don't panic and whatever. Um, I think we're it's past that point. And I'm not suggesting that we panic, but I think we need to be much more aggressive in terms of um, interventions, right? So I just think that there's quite a bit that we could be doing. And I'm not sure, you know, I think in the effort to sort of keep people from panicking, we're not doing all of these things. Um, and I think it's going to end up backfiring. Sorry, uh, I can go off and, you know, I've got a lot of thoughts on no, this. No, for sure. It's so, it's so timely. Like I had to add it. I think it's a conversation we're going to be having for years to come and it, it relates to everything, um, yep. which is why. I also want to talk about how might this global crisis of COVID-19 relate to the issues uh, that the My Call Fanana Project dives into. So already you talked about mass incarceration and how disproportionately different minority groups or people of different financial statuses are being affected. Um, so specifically related to race, politics, gender, femininity, how does COVID-19 relate to, to us? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think um, I think this has um, really highlighted the lack of a social safety net. Um, and um, you know, when you think about who, whether you know, you can we we can talk about um, the sort of obvious populations, right? The, the the homeless population, the incarcerated population, but really, you know, the the population that keeps the city running on the front lines, whether that be through service delivery or through running the subways or through running our schools or through, you know, providing um, triage services in, in healthcare facilities, that population is women and it is women of color. And it is often 
um, women of color who are heads of household and who are the single sort of provider for their families. Um, and so our lack of having a, a safety net for those people and for folks in that community is going to have an exponential ripple effect. Um, and so, you know, we're moving to try to sort of put some things, some, some protections in place, but we're moving so slowly um, in terms of the economics um, of that. Um, and then forget about the the actual sort of physical health and, and protections, right? We don't have enough gloves. We don't have enough masks. Um, so those people that are on the front lines, even now, um, providing services to keep people safe and healthy are at risk. And most of those people again, are, are, are people of color and live just one paycheck away from complete financial insolvency. And so without addressing that, um, we are just, we're, you know, sort of teetering on the edge of sending this whole other, you know, layer of the population into a much more vulnerable place. I mean, these, these, these families um, experience food insecurity, housing insecurity, um, all of these things are things that need to be um, factored in and need to be addressed. Um, and we need to come up with a, a comprehensive a solution that addresses all of those factors rather than continuing to sort of do one thing at a time. Um, I think that's that's problematic. I think we're not being aggressive enough, proactive enough in getting ahead of this. Diane, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Bed-Stuy, or Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, um, famously infamous. Um, back at a time where um, a lot of young um, white people fresh from college did not want to live here. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Um, and then this is kind of a jump, but was there something in your childhood or something that happened that inspired you to want to be a mayor now? Um no, <laughs> I have never, ever in my life actually aspired to political office. Um, this is a, this is new. What what did happen in my childhood that I think started this path, however, was I, you know that I became aware probably in high school um, of the fact that I was getting access to much more elite educational opportunities than the kids in my community. Um, as I sort of got farther up in my education, um, there were fewer and fewer kids in the classroom that looked like me. Um, and I understood that I was um, accessing something that that was different um, and that was broadening opportunity for me in a way that my younger, you know, that my sort of peers did not have access to. And so I think before I got the, before I developed the sort of critical analysis of what that meant and how, you know, what it, what it stemmed from, um, I definitely had a sense of both guilt and responsibility about doing something with that um, access that I had had and specifically doing something with it that involved um, increasing access for others and help, helping to sort of level the playing field and, and help people overcome Bar barriers and challenges. So I think that, you know, ultimately that is at the root of why I decided to run for office. Um, but it certainly is not an, it's not an idea that's been around in my head for a really long time. Um, actually, I, you know, I rejected that. 
I rejected it for almost a decade before um, deciding that maybe it was time for me to explore. And what made you reject it? Like, why were you for a decade? I mean, you know, I, I've always believed that the real way to create change was sort of in community and with community. Um, and I, I never wanted to, um, engage in what felt like the, um, let's see, um, the lack of sort of genuine representation in politics, um, or that, you know, what felt like the games, the political games, um, I think though that in recent years, um, you know, you, you start, whether it's the, whether you talk about the election of, of the current president, or you talk about, um, the devastation of Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. And, and, you know, I got very involved in that. Um, it became clear to me that, um, as successful as I might be in my work in the community, um, there were sort of, there are structures and systems in place that continue to perpetuate the the status quo, and that it's you know for me the ultimate um, act of a democracy is for someone like me or someone like us to run for public office, um, and the idea that we you know we need to re, we need to claim government as as a, a representation of us, um, and and I don't want to say take it back because I don't think it's ever really belonged to us, um, but make it ours. Um, and um, and that we have a right to do that. And and so and that it's only through doing that that we're actually going to kind of create the change that our communities need. And yeah. so, um, you know, I think all of those things together kind of like um, made me think, well, why not? You know, why not? And why not now? And why not me? So staying to that same point, like the government needs more people like us. Right. We need to make it ours. Right. So what how do you think your perspective as mayor might be different as a woman of color? Sure. Um, um, lots of ways. Um, Every you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, like I said, ha- having grown up as, uh, you know, my parents both came here from Puerto Rico. They came here separately. Um, I'm the youngest of three daughters, first generation to attend college. Um, I think there there is a uniqueness in those experiences. There's a uniqueness in what I described and sort of going through the education system and recognizing the difference in in access points and opportunities associated with that. Um, you know, later on in my life, I became a single mom um, of two, and and I think navigating that, um, the economics of that, um, navigating getting them education. Um, they both had learning differences, so struggling through that and recognizing that I had. Um, education, I had advocacy, I had networks that I could tap into that made things um, a little bit more accessible to me and my kids, but still were so hard um, that I couldn't imagine what it would be like for anybody who didn't have those things. Um, And then through the course of my work in, you know, serving as the executive of of, a variety of organizations that provide services and whether it's anti-poverty or education or career stuff um, to um, vulnerable communities that have often been forgotten and left behind, um, understanding what it takes to sort of navigate those things, um, understanding how those systems actually act as barriers in, in you know, to many communities um, and creating, you know, workarounds or, you know, finding the loophole around things to make things work. Um, I think all of those things, all of those experiences together give me a u- unique perspective on the lived experiences of, of the majority of our communities 
I also think that my decades of experience in the front lines on, you know, at the community level, elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder with people that look like me and, and are, were invested in making change. Um, when we were first talking about the Michael Fulnana project, right, this this topic of hair has grown to be such an endearing and exciting and frustrating and saddening topic um, in so many different ways, right, for the Black female community. It's complicated. It relates to the political, it relates to the racial, relates to the gender, relates to sexuality, all these things, right? So now running for mayor, your relationship to your hair, how can you tell me a little bit about it? Um, maybe also diving into your relationship to your hair as a child, how that's grown, if you have a relationship with your hair. Um, yeah, I love my hair. <laughs> um, wow, so that's a good, I mean, I love that. I love that we're having this conversation and, and putting it out there. It's so important that um, our community um, create our narrative around this um, and own it. Um, so, you know, I... I grew up in the 60s and 70s. Um, and back in the day, um, you wore your hair in pigtails or whatever, you know, up in some way until the day where you were old enough to get it relaxed or pressed. Um, and I remember being little and, and um, really, you know, be, really being self-conscious about my hair. Um, I, I, that didn't, probably didn't start until about fourth grade, right, where I was sort of like, oh, you know, um, in, in Spanish, there's a, the expression is pelo malo, like bad hair. Um, <clears throat> and the same thing applies to, you know, our, our, our physical structure, you know, physical um, attributes as well. But, um, you know, the hair is, it almost felt like hair walked into a room first, right? And so um, I remember kind of looking forward to the day when I'd be old enough to um, be taken to get my hair done. Um, and so I spent years, um, you know, that happened, I think I got that done in fifth grade at the end of fifth grade. And I spent years after that, um, going through the routine and so, you know, Sundays you wash your hair, you, you put the big fat rollos in it. Um, and then, um, and then you put the doobie, right. You did the wrap around your hair, which I never knew how to never learned how to do actually, but my mom was really good at that stuff. Um, and I, you know, I lived like that. I lived with that for, for decades. Um, it actually wasn't until the summer after my son was born, my son, who's about to be 22, um, that I was just like, I can't do all this, right? New mom, um, you know, dealing with, I was a full-time doctoral student at the time and trying to do my hair. That just was not going to work. Um, and so I cut my hair off, um, I, you know, I went almost like, like really, really close in the back. And then I had like curls in the front. And at the time, you know, you know, our, the length of our hair matters too. Like, you know, culturally, like they, you get sort of all sorts of definitions about that. And so I remember being criticized about having my hair short, about having it curly. Um, and it took a lot for me to sort of um, learn to kind of tune that out um, and just take pride. Um you know, the other thing is once you once you go natural, um, 
you have to learn all sorts of different ways to take care of your hair, like the whole, all the rituals and all the products and everything changes. So like the, you're starting from ground zero in terms of learning how to care for yourself. Um, you know, I have, you know, been really blessed over the last 10, 15 years or so, um, in terms of like having hairstylists that understand our hair, right. In terms of like a haircut, um, if you want a little color or a little, you know, you want to sass it up a little bit. Um, it's just, it's different. Um, and there hasn't been, you know, the industry for us is a, is still a fairly new industry. Um, but I am at the stage where, um, I love my curls. Um, I, I, you know, I do see it as part of my identity. Um, and I do see it as part of a political statement about who I am and loving myself and loving from whence I have come. Um, and I understand that not everybody um, is as evolved um, and I'm willing to help, you know, educate and bring people along, but I am no longer um, prepared to let people um, hold me back. People's opinions hold me back or, or, you know, people create their own definitions of who I am based on that. That's really awesome. Was there was there a moment when um, when you realized, right? So you said like when you had your first child, right? So Ben, he's 22. So you were in like your 30s at that point, right? So one of the things that the Michael Alfredo Project wants to do is we want young girls like at two, at four, at five years old saying, I love my curls and I love my hair and this is who I am, right? Do you have any thoughts or advice on how someone can have that realization before turning 30. before they're an adult yes <laughs> I mean I think I think so much of that is about um our generation your generation right um what we model um what we talk about um overcoming stereotypes um and that kind of profiling um and just being strong and powerful and embracing that right um i think that we still have a long way to go right the, the amount of shaming that's happening nationally you know at schools or in workplaces around these issues um is still highly problematic um but what i think is powerful and and um promising is the extent to which those things are being highlighted um and, you know, the extent to which there's a sort of increasing um, elevated voice um, rising against that, right? Um, and the extent to which there is a hair industry that is growing for us and by us. Um, I think that's really important. And I think, you know, we can't, we can't shield completely our, our children from the world at large, Um <clears throat> But we can do quite a bit to um, help focus and um, shift the messaging and the narrative that um, that our children hear. And I think that's really, really important. Um, you know, I, had I had, you know, truth be told, part of the messaging that I got was obviously from society at large, but also from my own household. What are some I, of the things that were? Well, my, you know, my mom has, quote unquote, good hair. Um, beautiful, long, you know, flowing, dark hair is what I remember when I was growing up. And, and my dad, my dad has, you know, had an Afro. Um, and, and I don't think there weren't any ever intentional sort of direct, like you've got bad hair. Um, but, you know, obviously my hair was harder to comb and, you know, and, and to, to manage and style. Um, and there were so many subtle messages, um, 
you know, my parents have come a long way um, since I was a child um, and wouldn't do or say some of the things that they did or said back then. But they, you know, there was converse, there were conversations about my bad hair. There were conversations um, about, you know, our blackness or lack thereof or, you know, arguments, right? Listen, you can't, you know, look at me and even begin to assume that there isn't any blackness in me. Like, I am a black Latina, right? Um, But there was resistance to that, right? For all of the stereotypes and all of the internalized racist reasons um, that we've all been exposed to in, in some way, shape or form. So, you know, I think it, it's a slow process, but I do think that there is a, an important role that we are playing that other, you know, that and the generations um, since us. And I'm saying us, you know, I don't know what generation I fall into, baby boomer, maybe, um, you know, that we're playing in terms of helping future generations overcome these these stigmas. Mm. Yeah. And then we were talking about you know, I think it was a month ago, right, when we first started talking about you coming on the My Call Nana Project, how there are some people who want you to change your hair for oh, yeah. as you're running for mayor. What What are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. Um, there's been talk about um, me letting my hair grow. There's been talk about, you know, different styling. Um, more in sort of, you know, to be, to be fair, it's often posed as like a question, you know, like, Huh, would you, you know, would you think about this or would you, cons- or do you think that this might, you know, be something that people, it's, it's very interesting, right? Like people are careful about it. Um, and, um, I get it. Like, and I, you know, listen, the, the U S isn't ready for a woman president. Um, maybe New York city is not ready for a person with curly hair. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I, you know, to the point that I made earlier, like this is who I am. And I, you know, part of my campaign is representation um, and representation of communities that have historically not been re- represented and, and have been left behind. And so um, it would be hypocritical of me to change something fundamental about who I am um, and who I hope to represent um, in response to those kinds of comments and remarks. So, um you know, with me, I, I, part of what I'm, um, part of what I'm, the value of my campaign, the values of my campaign is is kind of like um, reflecting my community and representing my community and and um, not being caught up in these other things. And so, um, it's really important to me that I stay true to that um, as I as I move this process forward. Yeah, and then that's awesome. And then, what do you think? like a young girl um, looking at someone in a place of power who has curly hair, hair that looks like theirs, like what, what kind of messaging does that promote? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, going to my point of like um, wanting to reflect the community, I think it's so powerful and so important to, for young people to see someone that looks like them in positions of leadership um, who, you know, people who are unabashed about who they are and what they look like, who are proud of who they are and what they look like. Um, you know, part of, part of some of our community's greatest challenges is the fact that we haven't seen ourselves represented in that way, whether that's, you know, in the media or in, in elected positions or on television. Um, we are here. We are not going away. And we have the right to claim our space 
in all of those places. And so, you know, if nothing else, um, if, if what I am able to do is to hold a mirror up to young women to let them see what might be possible, then I am all here for it. I love that. So one of the things that I did before, well, right after you accepted the interview, um, I emailed a bunch of our generous thinkers. Our generous thinkers are just like you're a generous thinker, um, people, different people we interview or who are just a part of our team. And I asked them, you know, do you guys have any questions that you would want me to ask Diane? Um, I was like, this is this is going to be one of our biggest interviews. So like, I would love that. So um, some of the things that they asked are, how would you use your role to advocate for young queer people of color in New York City public schools, um, especially those in low income communities? Yeah, awesome. I love generous thinkers. Um, so listen, you know, I think so much of there's two main places that people get educated, right? One is at home and the other one is at school. Um, and I don't think that our schools do enough to educate kids um, about, you know, gender differences, sexuality differences, identity differences. Um, and I think it's really important for us to embrace that in the classroom. Um, and that means creating curriculum so that there, that is an active part of what we're teaching, not a passive thing, not something that, you know, kids learn from each other, um, but something that we are taking a proactive role in, in teaching, educating, demystifying, destigmatizing. It is our responsibility to create a safe space for everybody. And so, um, you know, that is something I think is important. I think um, training teachers differently so that um, they are embracing that. And if they, you know, if they're not able to embrace that, then I don't know that they belong in the front of a classroom, right? Um, our, our children need to feel accepted. They need to feel safe. They're, no one's going to learn anything if they're not feeling individually safe and, and, and accepted. And so um, that is something I feel very, very strongly about. Um, and, and part of that involves, I think, um, engaging the community in the creation of that curriculum and what that needs to look like and, and how it gets rolled out, um, having people, again, re representation matters, having people, you know, concerted efforts to make sure that some of our teachers reflect what we're teaching as well. Um, I think that's also really important. And, 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 you know, really making it something that is an acceptable topic. Like it's so taboo, it's so hidden. Um, all of that contributes to the stigma. All of that contributes to all of the mental health challenges that our children and youth are experiencing around these issues. Um, and that is actually killing us. Um, and I, you know, that is, that is unacceptable to me um, as someone who um, has done so much work in that community um, and worked so hard to help the, you know, contribute to the self-acceptance and the, the sort of community safe spaces. Um, that is definitely something that's really important to me. And I, I think, um, I think we have a lot of way, a lot of progress to make on that front. Yeah. So on that same point, so the, the queer community, right. In New York city, is there, do you have any thoughts or campaigning or systems of advocacy that you would do in relation to young queer people of color? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think aside from the sort of education acceptance that, you know, um, the safety issue, um, the violence against the queer community is is unacceptable. 
Um, I think we need to find ways to create more safe spaces um, for for um, people to come together in community that aren't necessarily, you know, all bars and clubs, right? There's a whole sort of underground life there. And, and I have plenty of friends who are part of that community. And it's not the healthiest of communities, right? Um, there should be spaces for the queer community to come together that do not involve a bar or a club, right? Um, so in increasing access um, to spaces and also like just increasing integration, right? The ability for people, for, for queer the queer community to feel welcome and to feel like they can claim any public space in New York City and that they can be safe in any public space in New York City, um, public or private, actually. Because I think, you know, I, I don't think we, I don't think we can exempt our private businesses um, from those, those rules and expectations. Um, so I think that's part of it. And again, I think, you know, one of the key ways to do that is to involve the queer community in the creation of those policies, those structures, those, you know, systems. Um, I'm a strong believer in the community um, having the answers to its own challenges and the community having, you know, some of the best solutions and the best leadership um, and so it would be critical to me not to sort of come down from on high and dictate what the right things are. Um, I have some sense of, of what we need to do differently, um, but I would want to partner with with leaders, you know, and all folk, folks in the in the queer community in order to figure that out. I'm wondering what are the hardships of advocacy or what has been most difficult when campaigning? I know COVID-19, of course, has played a role in this, um, yeah. but beyond that as well. Yeah. So, you know, for a non-traditional candidate like me, a woman, woman of color, woman of color who's never been part of like the political machine, um, there's a little bit of a catch-22, right? Because the way traditional politics um, has sort of assessed candidates or embraced candidates is based on sort of a, a measure of what they call viability. And that's a combination of both like um, name recognition and fundraising. Um, but it's interesting because it's primarily like name recognition sort of within a bubble of what they call the chattering class, which are all the people that are already involved in politics. Um, so, so that's how it sort of like narrows who gets in, who gets access. Right. Um, and so when you, when you hold me up against those criteria, I don't really check the boxes. Um, so there's been a lot of conversation around my viability as a candidate. Um, and there's been a lot of attempts for others to define my viability as a candidate. And part of what makes that possible is the low voter turnout rates, too, of non-traditional communities, right? Because low-income communities of color don't vote at the same rates, um, yeah. And so, you know, my response to that is, you know, I continue to say, as I was talking about the hair or whatever, I'm not going to let anybody else define my viability as a candidate. Um, I believe that I could put up, hold my skills and experience up against any of the other candidates um, and I would be damn competitive. Um, I would even argue in some ways more so. Um, but what's critical and different about my race and my campaign is that I really need to be able to mobilize that segment of the population that traditionally does not participate in electoral politics. And that means um, making believers 
out of people who the system has historically left behind, Mm -hmm. right? Making them believers enough that they actually are willing to participate in the process, Um, whether that means by, you know, signing petitions or being willing to donate a dollar or, you know, um, showing up to vote. Um, the, the, you know, the surest way for my candidacy to, um, to make sure that we get heard and that it resonates is to mobilize and to create a movement from among people that really are ready for change um, and that are, understand what it means for them to, um, to take that power in order to create that change. Got it. Awesome. Um, and then my last, last question, which I ask all of our generous thinkers, why do you think it's important for the Maya Colfin and a project to exist, um, but also to expand and continue these conversations? Um, I think it's really, I was so excited to hear about this project um, because I think it's really, really important, again, to to rewrite the narrative in, in a way that we can control it, right? Um, it is our story to tell. Um, and so we should be the ones telling it and creating a platform that elevates that storytelling um, and that enables us to share it with the broader collective Um is critical um, and and can play such an important role in instilling that pride that we were talking about for the next generation and who we are and what we look like and how we style our hair um, and recording that and, you know, documenting it in a way that is different from our sort of oral history traditions, I think is also really important um, because it, it, you know, it becomes something that can't be rewritten by someone else. Um, and I think it's important for us to be able to own our own narrative. So I'm really, really grateful to you for coming up with this idea and this project and doing this work. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Is there anything else that you want to share or is there any other way that people can maybe get connected um, in terms of voting or anything like support you in any way? Sure. So the, the campaign has really, um, I mean, truth be told, um, the campaign's going to take a little bit of a hit right now, a little bit or a lot. Um um, because of the, the virus situation and because we've actually shifted our focus to creating resources for the community, um, finding ways to connect people um, in to counter this sort of social sense of social isolation that people might be feeling. So we're working on creating virtual communities so people can come together and, and connect um, so that people can find out what resources are, are available and also so that people can help others where they can <clears throat> So I would um, I would direct people to our website. Um, it's Diane D I A N N E dot N Y C. Um, there is a, a banner at the top of the website that that um, takes you to a page on the website that lists all of the resources that we are putting together for the community around this stuff. There's ways to get involved in terms of volunteering and and um, and helping with these efforts. Um, and people can follow my social media as well. Um, Diane Morales for the number four NYC in most cases on Twitter, Insta and Facebook um, and spread the word. I think, you know, if there's anything compelling about um, about my candidacy, my values um, or what I'm advocating for, um, it's it's folks like you and your generation that I think could help tip the scales um, and so I would appreciate any kind of, you know, sharing and, and support that, that you and your community want to offer. Awesome. 
Thank you so much for joining the My Colorful Nana Project, Diane. We wish you the best on election day. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for thinking generously. And we'll see you next month.